quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, thank you, Anderson. I am Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. So McConnell is now privately acknowledging he may not have enough votes to block witnesses, at least not yet. So what does this mean? Are we going to see the president's former national security advisor testifying? You know, the guy who has direct testimony about what the president said and did with Ukraine and why? The president's own former chief of staff. What about him? He told you to your face that this was a quid pro quo. What about what John Kelly is saying now and why? We also have brand new video of Kobe Bryant's uh, helicopter in the moments before it went down. They're still trying to figure out why so much life, so many families were destroyed. Did it have to happen? Plus, we have new emotional sound from Shaquille O'Neal tonight. And we have uh, the brother of this great coach that was lost in this tragedy, all part of remembering who was lost. So. So the majority leader reportedly doesn't currently have the votes to block witnesses from being called because some on his side remain uncommitted. One little step to the side for a moment. Hold on. The idea that after you learn that the main prong of the president's case, which is what? Nobody even says he did anything wrong. This is all on the side and the speculation. Pretty compelling. Now you have a guy who was in the room, hence the name of his book, saying the president told me he was holding up the aid because he wanted to get the Bidens. Can you really, in good conscience, say that you came to a conclusion without hearing him? Really? Even if it's not going to change your vote. How do you sell that to the men and women back home? Yeah, yeah, I came to a conclusion. Yeah, they said that they didn't have anybody. Uh, But then they did, but I didn't think it was worth it then. Come on. Bolton is only accentuating what should already be obvious. Okay, And what does it say now that the president's former chief of staff has Bolton's back? General Kelly says if he said it in the book, I believe him. Hmm. Some rare input from John Kelly there that he believes Bolton and thinks there are other people who ought to be heard from. You know why? Because there are. This is a trial where you're trying to figure out what happened, where you haven't talked to any of the people who made the decisions. Doesn't make any sense. But let's talk to the better people and let's see if they agree with at least some of it. Uh, Preet, it's great to have you. Thank you for Thanks being for with us tonight. Um, I've been arguing all along and you have been instructive to the audience. There is no such thing as a trial without witnesses. I've never and, heard of one. And, and nor has the Senate ever had one uh, in the nature of an impeachment trial without any witnesses. Right. And just for good faith argument, you don't think he should be removed. Great. You can sell that argument. How do you sell it to people back in your district? or in your Senate uh, seat, if you say, yeah, I didn't need to hear from the people who actually know what happened. Yeah, I mean, I think you can't, uh, unless there's a subgroup of people who are tried and true fans of the president of the United States, and doesn't matter what he does, these are the people he thinks 
won't bat an eye if he shoots someone on Fifth Avenue. But people who are not so beholden and cultish in their admiration for the president, I think, want to hear that. And by the way, think about how this is going to play out if you don't have John Bolton. The book is coming out, almost yep. certainly, in like six weeks. He's going to go on a book tour. Maybe he'll be on your show. You know, that mm-hmm. will be fun to watch. And he's going to be saying all these things that are directly relevant to the guilt or innocence of the president of the United States in these proceedings that are happening as we speak. And how is that going to look to everyone when every senator who voted against John Bolton coming to testify has to explain why they didn't want to hear from this person who is now on every network in the world talking about those very same things. And by the way, um, we want to talk about the popular response to this also, but just one side point uh, legally to what Preet's talking about is another main argument for them is, and you know, by the way, if we call one of these witnesses, they're going to claim executive privilege. With Bolton, not only is he no longer in the White House, but how did they not waive privilege by calling him a liar, talking about the back and forth and saying he has it wrong? You're the professor. Uh, the president did waive executive privilege by contesting what Bolton was saying. So it's so sort of game over. There's no real legitimate claim at all. But many of the claims that we're hearing from the White House lawyers are not really legitimate based on the law. They're based on their hopes about the facts. They're right. hopeful restatements of what they hoped had happened. But the facts and the evidence really seems to be on the other side. Well, they're taking a guess that people will believe them. Now, to this, over 70 percent in the most recent poll of people say, I want to hear from more people. That's where the people are. I think it's like 75, good, 75, 20. How does that factor in? Even if that means that they want to hear from the Bidens, right? That doesn't necessarily right. think that they, they mean that they think the president should be impeached. That having been said, there's a lot of pressure on McConnell because what has he been doing when he's been whipping votes throughout all of this time? I got this. We'll make it short. We'll make it sweet. We're not going to have any witnesses. And what happens? He's blindsided by the White House when he finds out that they actually had excerpts and copies uh, of Bolton's book. Yeah. How do you, how do you figure that part? So, so they so send the book over to the White House. Right. Is it that the president's not the only guy who doesn't like to read? The yeah, NSC I mean, had it. it. Don't know if his lawyers had it. But to either not tell McConnell or to tell McConnell and for McConnell not to come right. forward, neither is a good option for him. Right. But help, help me with this. So you serious? I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be sarcastic. So you know it's in-house. You know they've sent this book over. Yeah. You're preparing for this. And you don't want to get some sense of what's in there that you have to look for. Yeah, look, I, so not to unduly plug my own book, but I wrote a book, too about my time as U.S. attorney, uh, that I... book. That I, thank you. That I, it's called, I it's called Doing Joe, Justice. Joe, he doesn't matter. Um, it hurts, but I'll take it away. It's out on paperback now. My, <laughs> now my publisher is very happy. Um, I didn't have any classified information in there, nothing sensitive. I submitted it to the Department of Justice for pre-publication review in an abundance of caution. I wrote a letter to the publisher, I mean, to the, to the, to the administration, very similar to what John Bolton's lawyer wrote to the White House, saying, we don't think there's anything classified in here, but in an abundance of caution, right. we're sending it to you. And I was assured during the process that it, it, is, it is looked at, the manuscript is looked at by career professionals who are only trying to make sure that no secrets get out. And I'm sure he got that reassurance too, but he's in a much different position sure. from an ordinary former government employee where the things that he is claiming in the book go right to the heart of the guilt or the, or the innocence of the President of the United States. And other people have said, Jack Goldsmith, who's a prominent professor at Harvard Law School and worked in the government for a period of time in the Justice Department, says, you know, from time to time, those manuscripts got out to other people. It would be weird to me had it not gone out. And if it hasn't before, I'm guessing it is now. Because as soon as, the, and I don't know if you agree with me, Professor, if in the next couple of days through that process, the White House says, we're blessing this publication of this, of this book, 
then they have doubly waived, I think, right. executive privilege. If they're saying it's fine to go out, this is their opportunity to say you can't publish this book. So that's a kind of interesting thing to see what's going to happen with that in the next couple of days. Yeah, assuming they've reviewed it. You know, the problem, I think you might have said this to me a few days earlier that in more eloquent words than I'm about to say it. But one of the problems with the spaghetti on the wall strategy is that you wind up making yourself vulnerable to things that wind up not sticking. Like um, they don't have anybody who can pin the president to this directly. Yes, we do. Uh, we actually know we have two, three or four of them. Uh, the idea uh, that when you're looking at this, you know, it's all going to be privileged anyway. Mm-hmm. Now that's gone. Uh, and they have the idea of, you know, even if this happened, you know, this wouldn't be impeachable, even if it were all true. Now they have problem with that. All of those lead to witnesses. Not that it'll change the whip vote count ultimately, but do you want to get an acquittal for this president if people know the process was light? I would assume they don't care. Uh, they want an Take acquittal. a win at any they cost. They want to win any way they can get it. But to, make, to sort of just roll it back a little bit and use some common sense, we know the book was sent over to the administration. The only explanations for the White House counsel's arguments in the trial so far um, not mentioning the book, not taking it into account in any of their comments. Not telling and, McConnell. Right, telling McConnell. Has to be either incompetence or they're lying. There's no third alternative. Uh, the third alternative is, uh, maybe it falls under one subset A, is they thought McConnell had them covered. That So we're going to kind of fudge over the fact that Bolton may, we don't think he's going to chirp the way he did, but even if it comes out, the book will be okay. He'll still get the votes. And now it may not look like he will. And I don't think there's any chance that it's just four. If it's four, it's got to be eight or nine, because as soon as people get the advantage to avoid the pre-problem of how do you sell at home, they'll jump on the bandwagon. And and there's also an ethical question, I believe, that arises with respect to the lawyers for the president. Did they know? They were were asked today in a a briefing where they had a confident, where they had a source, unidentified, I believe, who was asked the question, did you review the manuscript? Right. And they said, no, we didn't review the manuscript. They were then asked, well, were you briefed on the contents of the manuscript? And they said, that's all we're going to say. And so they made arguments in the well of the Senate, on the Senate floor, that said there's no witness. Essentially, there's no witness who can say or who has said that the president of the United States told them that they were linking aid to these investigations of the Bidens. And that might be, depending on your view, technically true to the letter, but it's grossly misleading. And I think... And I think a violation of ethical duties. And it throws McConnell under the bus. I mean, remember just a few weeks prior, McConnell had said that he's in lock on television, had said that he's in lockstep with this administration and with the White House. Mm -hmm. So either he's lying, which I don't think is the case, or he also was blindsided and he had told the Republican senators, I've got this. It's fine. We don't need witnesses. And now you've got many saying maybe we do. Here's the good news for the Senate majority leader. He's going to have plenty of company underneath the bus. That just ran him over because plenty have gone before, trusted what was going to happen in this White House and wound up underneath exactly where he's about to be. All right. So thank you very much to each and all. What now for the Democrats? Okay, because this is all about how one side counters the other. You're going to have this phase of 16 hours of questions that the senators ask through the chief justice to either side of the advocates. How do they play it? We have a Trump juror here. Preview next. Next phase is two days worth of questionings from the senators through the chief justice to the impeachment managers and Trump Co., his lawyers. Uh, The question is going to be written on a card like this. Uh, What will the Democrats ask to bolter their argument for 
witnesses. Let's get some insight from Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal. Thank you, as always, sir. Thank you. Good First, you. Uh, forget about McConnell not knowing whether or not he has the votes. Who knows? Maybe he's putting that out there. To, I, I don't know what that means. I don't care about it. Um, do you think at this point that if they don't have witnesses, this is going to wind up being something that will haunt the GOP because you know you need them. You have their own cases laid out, Senator, the need for witnesses. They just didn't expect Bolton to speak up like this. They had no idea, presumably, that Bolton was going to speak up, at least for perhaps Mitch McConnell didn't, but the White House lawyers may well have. And one of the questions we're going to have in the next two days is, what did they know and when did they know it and Mm. why, apparently, did they hide it from the Senate? But there's no question in response to your question that they will be haunted by history. They're facing 75 percent of the American people. And in many of the states that are involved in tough reelection races and even higher percentage that want witnesses and documents and other evidence. And they're also facing a vindictive and vicious president and a master counter in Mitch McConnell. Mm. But the most important point and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, was that the truth eventually is going to come out, Mm -hmm. and not in a matter of years, but in days and weeks, because the Bolton manuscript is there, and more of it will come out. It'll be published in just a matter of weeks. Yeah, it's like March 17th. But also other sources. Right by the uh, Ides of March, uh, by the way. No small coincidence. Now, forgive me this uh, nakedly political question for a second, but... Couldn't you make the argument, Senator, that it is better for your party in the election for there to not be witnesses? Don't beat me over the head with the Constitution and the duty to try. I know, I know. But I'm just saying if we will likely not change the ultimate vote count, maybe a couple. But the acquittal seems to be the path that this party, the GOP, is insisting on. If there are no witnesses, isn't that more helpful to the Democratic cause of saying, look how they perverted this process just to get their want here, just like they did with Kavanaugh, uh, where they rammed it through. They rammed this through, too. And look at all these other things that have come out that they hid from. Isn't politically that more beneficial and more the point of what the truth will show? There may be a good political argument, Chris, I will grant you. But in the larger scheme, this trial really is such a serious matter in the history of this republic we should be searching for the truth. And I'll avoid beating you overhead with the constitutional argument, but the practical, better good government argument and the conscience of the Senate ought to be to seek the truth. That's what we took the oath to do. I am still listening. The summation today was virtually fact-free, filled with innuendo and insinuation from the president's lawyers I was listening for some shred or scintilla of evidence. Mm. And what they said in that closing argument, by the way, made the case for John Bolton as a witness. I I hear you on that. I hear you on that. But now what happens? Let's say you get the witnesses. okay? and they say, fine, you can have Bolton. We want Joe Biden. Well, Joe Biden or Hunter Biden, who is more likely to be requested, they're saying is part of a quid pro quo. I don't think that we can do a quid pro quo trade on witnesses in an impeachment trial involving an alleged corrupt quid pro quo. More to the point. But you don't have the votes, Senator. 
Well, they can call Hunter Biden or Joe Biden. That's right. At any point. They have the majority. Yeah. And you know the reason that they haven't called them. They don't want them as witnesses because they don't want to prolong the trial and they don't want necessarily to turn it into a circus. What they have done in the course of this trial is try to continue the smear of the former vice president mm. and his son. And that's what they're trying to put on the Senate floor if they insist on this witness trade. But there's one other point here that's Please. really important. And that is that we need witnesses who have relevant firsthand knowledge like Bolton. They refer to Bolton's book as unsourced manuscript, leaks, hearsay. Let's have the witness. You can't cross-examine the manuscript, but right. we can cross-examine the witness. Strong point. Senator Blumenthal, thank you very much. I appreciate it, especially on a big night. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. Uh, we got an update just a short while ago from the NTSB. They're investigating the crash that killed Kobe Bryant, his daughter, uh, and seven others. We're going to go through what they have learned. Up next, we're joined by one of Kobe's friends, teammates, NBA legend in his own right, Derek Fisher. He considered it a gift and a blessing to have played with Kobe. Why? Next. All right, so the NTSB says it will have a preliminary report in about a week and a half, like 10 days on the crash that killed basketball great Kobe Bryant and eight others, including his own daughter, a couple of other kids, and just some great people who are now lost. Investigators have offered some new information on the final moments before the tragedy, and we're going to have it for you shortly. But first, I want to bring in someone who knew Kobe and loved him dearly. Bryant's former teammate turned head coach for the L.A. Sparks of the WNBA, Derek Fisher. He's actually outside the Staples Center tonight. Coach, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Chris. I know this is very difficult. I'm sorry to have to have this conversation, but I do think it matters right now for people to understand who and what was lost. I keep hearing from his friends. It wasn't the basketball. It wasn't the points. It wasn't the athleticism. That's not why I came to respect him as much as I did. What was it for you? Uh, for me, it was, you know, his entire being. I mean, I, I spent most of my professional career as a player, most of my formative years as a man, um, as a father, as a husband, um, alongside of Kobe, plane rides, bus rides in the arena. Uh, and we grew up together in a lot of ways, even though I'm only a few years older. Um, I don't think that any of us can achieve the best version of ourselves, you know, whatever our individual greatness is, without inspiration from others. And for me, personally, uh, he was a gift and a blessing because I, I got a chance to live with, in a sense, someone that on a daily basis was trying to access the greatest parts of of who he is and who he was. And um, I, I don't know if, you know, we'll ever have someone else like him. And that, you know, that adds to the pain to not get a chance to see him continue on with his legacy. What did you see in him as a father, especially uh, with Gianna, Gigi, and, and trying to help her be a ball player? Uh, you know, being fully present is sometimes a hard thing to do in life for all of us, uh, regardless of what uh, keeps us busy, what our professions are. It's really difficult to be fully present in life. And 
uh, I think as men for our children, uh, sometimes we're working so hard to provide for them, to create a life for them. We're not actually present in their lives in a way that's meaningful and impactful the way it should be. And to, to observe Kobe and, and watch him and see him uh, spread his love to try and impact his daughter's experience as a, a young athlete was moving. Um, oftentimes, in, like when there is a movement happening that I think is happening in women's sports and for young girls, uh, people are taken away too soon. Mm. Dr. King was taken away from us too soon. Brother Malcolm X was taken away from us too soon. JFK was taken away from us too soon. And it slows the process of movement down. And I don't, I don't know if we fully connect yet to possibly the process of, of movement in women's sports, the support, the dollars, the attention, the notoriety that these women deserve and young girls like Gianna deserve. Kobe being gone slows that process down unless we keep it moving and somehow pick it up. And that's arguably and honestly probably the only reason I'm talking as much as I am about what this is and what it means to me because I don't want that part of him and what he was trying to do to, to go away with him. You know, sometimes people rationalize premature loss uh, of some of the men that you were talking about and other leaders and communities by saying that maybe the plan was that they got taken too soon so that people could recognize what they meant uh, and carry on their work. Maybe they become a catalyst. I mean, maybe that's just wishful thinking. Uh, but we'll see. And having men like you step up and say, now the time is to talk about what mattered to him and how to continue it. Maybe that's exactly what will happen. Uh, let me ask you something else, coach. Uh, I want to know if this is true for a superstar or a pro ball player like you and Kobe, as it is for just regular people, that when a parent sees their kid do something in sports, score a basket, whatever, make a good play, they appreciate it so much more than whatever greatness they achieved on the court. Did you see any of that in Kobe when he would watch his daughter play? It's tough to see from his face. You know, he always has such a poker face on. But what did it mean to him to see his daughter do things well on the court? Uh, it's a great question. I wish, I wish he was here to answer it. Honestly, I, I, the, what I know about Kobe and, and understand, I don't think it was much about the basketball aspect. Um, I think more than anything, he wanted for his children, uh, for his teammates, people like myself, to uh, be passionate about what you want to do in life. Uh, and I think he would have been and, and was just as supportive of all of his children, regardless of their passions or endeavors. For Gianni, it was basketball. For Natalia, it's volleyball. Uh, for his younger girls, it'll be other things possibly. I think he just loved the idea of seeing Gianna really, really passionate about being great uh, at what she wanted to be in life. Whatever it and is. that was a great basketball player, whatever it is. And that, that's what parenting is about. It's not about forcing anything on our children. And I think he was there no matter what. What will you tell his youngest about her father when she's ready? Anything she wants to know. That, that I can offer. Uh, the, the tough part about this is how many, you know, people do have stories and moments that they can share with um, his youngest daughter. So the, the one thing that really pops to mind, honestly, Chris, is a conversation he and I had about our children and life uh, and navigating, 
you know, the decisions you sometimes have to make as a man and the choice he made to look 20 years ahead in his life and think about where his daughters would be if his family unit was not together uh, and how that helped to shift his mindset on um, being a father, being a husband and the choice he made uh, to do what he needed to do. And so that's what I'll tell anybody that wants to hear is that Kobe was intentional about being a great father and a great husband. Uh, and as men, that's what we all are striving to be. I don't know if any of us will ever be as good at it as he was, but um, that's what I'll tell them when I get the chance. Coach Derek Fisher, thank you so much uh, for sharing your pain and your perspective uh, on a friend and a great player and a great man who was lost. Thank you, sir. Thank you. As I said, NTSB officials are still processing the crash site. Uh, They did give new details, actually a fair amount. Uh, We're going to analyze what we now understand with investigators. Could it have been? Could it have been? All right. It's a question. A piece of equipment on board. Was that a factor in what was happening here? I'll explain next. A high-energy impact crash. That's how the NTSB describes the crash that killed Kobe Bryant and eight others, including his young daughter. They say the helicopter hit the hillside here in Calabasas at a speed of about 20 miles an hour. That has to be taken in context, and we'll do that with the experts. The issue is the chopper lacked a terrain awareness and warning system. The acronym is TAWS, T-A-W-S, something the NTSB has been pushing for since about 2004. The FAA doesn't require it. We also have new video of this ship, the Sikorsky S-76B in Glendale, California, at around 9.29 Sunday morning, about 15 minutes Um, before the last radar contact. Uh, So let's bring in Mary Scavo and Tom Sater with me. A note, Mary works for a law firm that represents victims and families after aviation disasters. It's good to have you uh, both with us. Uh, First, um, high energy impact crash. What does that mean to us, Mary? Well, it means that the plane was coming down with a great rate of speed, and so speed turns into energy when it impacts with the ground. And you can see that from the crash and wreckage site. Uh, The harder the impact, the higher the energy, the the greater dissipation. Um, And now when we're talking, Tom, uh, just give us a general sense of conditions and why this ship would have been flying this low. All right. Well, yeah, sure, Chris. I, I was here when the tragic news came out. Anytime you hear, get news of an aircraft going down, you got to look at weather right away. What's interesting, though, however, at the same time, reports were that cyclists, mountain bikers, told authorities that they saw this helicopter in distress. So right away, you're thinking, well, maybe mechanical. But when it comes to the weather, we had 100% humidity. I mean, this is fog. We had reports of its soup. The winds were light. But if you look at the cloud deck, we have also what's called a marine layer. Big storms to the north are bringing in this soup from the Pacific. That lowers the visibility, not to mention, even though you can see at the surface, it's two and a half, three miles. But we have a temperature inversion. Cold air aloft is acting like a lid. So it's trapping everything. If you look at the cloud deck, the top of the cloud deck was about 3,100 feet. 
The base of the cloud deck was around 1,000. For most of this trek that they made, this, uh, they were about eight to 900 feet. So it does vary. I mean, visibility cannot, uh, it's, it's not just generally saying, okay, it's pea soup everywhere. From ridgetop to ridgetop, right. canyon to canyon, the visibility changes. Right. But he stayed below that most of the time. All right, so he's obviously a highly trained pilot. Uh, the soup, you know, we've heard it disca- dis- uh, described as being inside of a glass of milk. So obviously, even with the instruments, he felt he had to go low. He goes so low um, that now they can't see him on radar. And th- there becomes a couple of interesting dynamics, Mary. I want you to take on. And Tom, as always, brother, just chime in when you got something to say. Um, so the tower says this. The Burbank Tower, you can expect a few minutes. I've got a special VFR helicopter in need to get transitioning. He's been holding 15 minutes. I got a special VFR Listen. helicopter in need to get transitioning. He's been holding for about 15 minutes. Uh, northwest, follow the 5 freeway, maintain special VFR Correction, special VFR conditions, at or below 2,500. Special VFR at or below 2,500, I-5, northbound to question. All right, now look, first of all, what, what do we know there? He doesn't sound like he's in a panic at that particular time, the pilot, right? But I want you to understand well, that in this context, Mary. So he doesn't sound like that. He's asking for uh, special VFR rules, uh, visual flight rules, because he's low. And while you're describing it, I'm just going to play through the pl- flight path so they can see how the helicopter, that 15 minutes, probably is this circling around Glendale, um, where he was going. We see these loops on the, on the, uh, the route map here of it going round and round. How, what's your read on that, Mary? Well, he was holding because he had the problem of traffic, and then he also had the, the weather conditions, so he had to get the special VFR. And what's really important to talk about the special VFR is that's not a way that you fly in just regular operations. I mean, some people say, when should you get a special VFR? Never. But if you're in a situation where you think you can get around the weather and around the traffic and you just need a little special, a little special exclusion, if you will, from the minimums that you usually have to fly in, you know, for it's uh, usually a 1,000 feet, but for helicopters, it is lower. And so this is just a way to get you to another place, but you're still supposed to be able to see where you're going and fly what you see. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong to say at this site, uh, Tom, with all your experience and Mary as well, that when you look at the crash site and what we're told is that basically um, it seems like this hill or this mountain came up on this pilot suddenly because of the conditions. And he wound up misjudging it. And that 20 uh, mile an hour speed, obviously that's forward motion, right? That's speed over ground. And he was probably trying to go up and he didn't make it uh, and wound up crashing into it at that angle. So do you think, Mary, that what we're going to look at here is going to be a visit, you know, a combination of factors uh, that went to him not having the warning system? Yes, but him being in tough weather, having to hold, trying to find a way out of it and having a lot of mountains around him and not a lot of visibility or time. Right. And the decision to take off in the first place. Was it qualified for IFR? Did the plane have autopilot? If you're flying commercial air, uh, helicopter in IFR conditions, you usually have to have two pilots or, or, uh, or autopilot. And did he make a sharp turn trying to avoid the mountain and cause the helicopter to have a rotor blade stall? So many things the NTSB will address. Mm. Tom, what else can you tell us? 
Well, for the most part, you know, you have to take in consideration, he probably took this path dozens of times. When you look at the elevation, and this was the holding pattern where they had to clear the aircraft in Burbank, he stayed low following Interstate 5 to 101. You know you can see by his trek here, he's following right along the highways, so he obviously had a visual. When he got in tech with Van Nuys in, in contact, he went north of Van Nuys. Uh, they said, okay, do you want now to get in contact with SoCal? And he said, sure. As he came back around, his elevation crew is still the same on the entire highway until he climbs uh, all the way to 2,300 feet. This is where we calculated if he would have stayed there, he would have cleared all of these ridgetops. But why? And of course, we'll find out later. Mary may know more why the sudden drop uh, at the last moment. Uh, Again, he would have cleared all of these. And there's that bank to the left that they were talking about in the press conference. So again, he had a visual the entire way, but he does get into higher terrain toward the very end. But if he would have stayed to the uh, above it, it looks like they would have cleared this. So again, still a lot of questions. Medical emergency or that part you were talking about? Mechanical as well. No doubt weather plays a role here, I think, though. All right, Tom, Mary, let's do this. As we find out more information, please, I'm going to lean on you guys to help us understand this because there was just too much loss uh, for us not to understand and hopefully learn something about it to avoid it the next time. Mary Schiavo, Tom Sater, as always, thank you. Thank you. All right, a lot of questions uh, to answer. As we get the information, we'll go on it in terms of understanding the loss. The questions that are looming large over this impeachment trial also need attention. Now, what should each side be asked? I have three main questions that I believe I argue will get to the heart of the matter. Next. Time to debate is over. Now we have 16 hours over two days of senators asking questions to both sides. Here are my top three. First, for counsel to the president, a major prong of your argument is that no one can tie the president to the plot in Ukraine directly. And Trump and you say that those in charge would prove he did nothing wrong, especially now with Bolton directly contradicting you and Mulvaney having contradicted your assertion in the past. Aren't witnesses a must? Now, before you answer that, Uh, and say it's an absurd notion that only helps Democrats prolong this process, remember this. I would rather go the long way. I would rather interview Bolton. I would rather interview a lot of people. The president said at that time, but I'm worried about privilege issues. You know how privilege works, senators? You do. He attacked Bolton and questioned his veracity. His lawyers did the same. Bolton is no longer in the White House. You take those two together, either the privilege does not extend to Bolton because he's out, or the president arguably waived it by calling him a liar about exactly this subject matter. Besides, executive privilege doesn't mean you can't ask an advisor about anything under any circumstances. It's selective, often by topic or even by question, and never covers questionable acts of abuse or criminality. Now, I doubt we would get a satisfying answer, but here's a runner up question on this. Why did they dare to argue that no one can tie this president to wrongdoing directly when they've had a draft of Bolton's book? Is Trump not the only one in the White House who doesn't like to read? Question number two for the Democrats this time. House managers, everything you're alleging amounts to a bribe. 
Why didn't you charge Trump with a bribe? Their answer will likely be concerns about getting bogged down in the elements of recent crime law, uh, case law at the Supreme Court about what a bribe is with a public official. Did they overthink it? The law is the bedrock. Bribery is the bedrock of a corruption charge, okay? The founders included it for a reason. Besides, the president isn't being charged with a crime since he can't be indicted. So forget about this precise element by element. He had the corrupt intent. He had the desire to influence an official act. And yes, there was a quid pro quo. You give me this quid. The, what was that? The Biden probe announcement. And I give you that quo. What was that? The aid, the love of, of with the meeting and being with me and the new ambassador. Now, by not including that charge, you allowed Trump Co. to swing a big stick. They didn't even have enough to charge him with a crime. This is impeachment light. (laughs) This is the lightest impeachment in the history of our country by far. There were no crimes whatsoever. There are no crimes. It says it. There are no crimes. Question number three for counsel to the president. You intentionally distorted the facts during your argument. Why abuse the record? First, proof of your premise. Asking a foreign leader to get to the bottom of issues of corruption is not a violation of an oath. No, it wouldn't be a violation if that's what happened. But as Trump likes to say, look at the transcript. The Ukrainian president talks about draining the swamp. Trump is focused on the Bidens and crowd strike and favors. He wasn't concerned about widespread corruption in Ukraine. He was laser focused on his rivals. Then there's this. President Zelensky and high ranking Ukrainian officials did not even know the security assistance was paused till the end of August. One, it doesn't have to be tied to the call, but also Pentagon official Laura Cooper testified that she saw two emails in late July, about the time of the call, indicating that Ukrainian officials knew that aid had been frozen. That lines up with closed door testimony from a State Department official. How about this? Former Vice President Biden publicly details what we know happened. His threat to withhold more than a billion dollars in loan guarantees unless Shokin was fired. This was the prosecutor investigating Burisma Shokin. All right. Ms. Bondi is insinuating that Biden made his demands to save his son. But that argument leaves out some key facts, like the investigation into Burisma was inactive at the time. What does that mean? There was nothing to stop. And that pretty much everyone in the world agreed that Shokin was ineffective or corrupt, including the Ukrainian parliament. Ukraine's parliament voted him out. Biden was also acting in line with U.S. policy. Can they say the same thing about Trump? Let's see if these get asked. And if so, how do they get answered? That's the argument. Now, tonight we heard from a teammate of Kobe Bryant's, right? You heard from Derek Fisher. You heard from a lot of his teammates. But one of the interesting things about how people are processing this loss is how is it making them feel about their own lives? I want you to hear from Shaquille O'Neal and some other NBA big shots about what this has done to them. Next. A solemn bolo tonight. It comes from Kobe Bryant's friend and former NBA teammates as they reflect on the loss of Kobe, but also what it makes them think about how to live their own lives. Listen. Listen. 
it's okay to feel whichever way you're feeling right now. It's okay to be hurt. It's okay to cry. It's okay to show emotion. It's okay to have laughter. It's okay to talk about, to get around people and talk about the moments that you've shared with Kobe Bryant. Because we all know when you talk about the mama mentality, he wanted to outwork you, right? I'm gonna outwork people. I'm gonna to continue to work and celebrate him. Because I think that's what he would want. And I think a lot of times we, we, we take stuff for granted. Like I don't talk to you guys as much as I, as much as I need to. The fact that uh, we're not gonna be able to joke at his Hall of Fame ceremony. We're not gonna be able to say, hi, I got five, you got four. The fact that we're not going to be able to say, if we would stay together, we could have got 10. Those are the things that you can't get back. It's hard. It's hard to lose someone you care about. It's hard to express it. A lot of men don't. Uh, that's proof. That's one of the largest, strongest men in the world. And vulnerability, vulnerability is strength. And the message is very clear. There is no guarantee of tomorrow. And the people you love and the people you care about you need to do that now because you never know what happens next. Thank you very much for being with us tonight. I want to get to Don Lemon, CNN Tonight. This is something that me and D. Lemon have been talking about uh, because we love each other very much and uh, we cherish having time with each other. But it's occasions like this. The first thing Don said when we were processing that Kobe was gone was. He said, don't go anywhere. I Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.